0: But then there's all oh, the lots of young coaches now who are more modern thinking, who are now thinking, oh, Alex, let's just do isometrics and do bosch cordtive drills. And I'm, oh no, like the <laughs> athlete needs strength. He's Great. weak.
1: Big, big milestones today, my friend. This is our 350th episode of the Physical Prep Podcast. Now, I know I put this out there in the past, but when I first started this show, I thought I'd do 50, maybe 100 episodes. So to get to this 350 number just seems absolutely insane. But here's what's even cooler. Either today or tomorrow, we're going to cross 2 million total downloads. So in our little space of strength and conditioning, of physical preparation, to think that we've had 2 million shows downloaded, that doesn't even count streams, that just absolutely blows me away. But I think the coolest thing for me is the positive feedback that I get from people like you on social media and email. So before we jump into today's episode, let me just say thank you so much for your support over the years, because I truly appreciate it more than you will ever know. And now listen, while people like you drive the show, there's the other side of this, and I feel blessed by all of the amazing coaches, trainers, and therapists who have taken their time to come on and share their wisdom. But I've got to admit, sometimes I'm still blown away at the quality of certain guests, and I can tell you with zero reservations that today's show is one of my top five episodes of all time. Alex Natera is the manager of sports science at the New South Wales Institute of Sport and a primary presenter of the Isometric Strength Training Webinar Series. Prior to his current position, Alex has traveled the globe to work in Rugby Union, the English Premier League, and the esteemed Aspire Academy. In today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into athletic development, spanning everything from detailed assessments to designing programs that will make your athletes more powerful, explosive, and resilient. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, as someone that's been in the coaching game for 22 years now, I'm still looking for ways to get better at my craft. I love learning more about what high-level practitioners are doing, and especially when they're people like me who are constantly looking to sharpen the saw and get a little bit better every single day. In today's episode, Alex and I start by talking about how his spark was lit for physical preparation as a 10-year-old lad. From there, we dive into his pyramid approach to assessment, to help you choose assessments that are most reflective of the sport, or sports, you're working in. Then, we get to the really fun stuff where we discuss strength training as a whole, when to choose bilateral versus split stance lifts, the role of various types of isometrics in your program, and why you should be developing repeat power ability. I really feel like I caught lightning in a bottle with this episode, and regardless of where you're at as a coach, I think you're going to walk away with some new insights for the long term, as well as some actionable items you can apply today in the short term. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this amazing episode with Alex Natera. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by ExerFly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I first got interested in flywheel training because I wanted my athletes to be better prepared for sport. Standard free weight training is great for the early preparatory phases, but I wanted something that could improve the rate of force development in both the concentric and eccentric phases of the lift. Most importantly, I wanted to make sure my athletes were prepared for those eccentric forces that they'll encounter in sports. And with their motorized technology, the ExerFly allows you to increase the eccentric phase of the lift from anywhere from 1 up to 80%. The biggest objection I had early on was learning a new piece of tech or equipment. After all, sometimes these things sound great, but really aren't all that functional or they take forever to figure out. But luckily if you take the time to watch a few short videos and experiment a little bit, you'll be using the ExerFly like a pro in no time. Setup is quick and easy and my athletes are absolutely loving it. Last but not least, there are tons of different exercises and variations you can use as well. Whether we're talking squats, hinges, presses, split squats, if you can think of it, chances are you can figure out a way to do it with the ExerFly. The really cool thing is ExerFly is used by numerous teams in the NFL nba over 50 percent of the english premier league and numerous olympic developmental programs as well now as a small business owner i normally think hey this is way outside of my budget i can't afford it because we all know in a small business every penny counts but Xerfly has you covered there as well they offer 36 month interest fee financing so you can get started asap with your training and pay as you go and when you factor in a 30-day money-back guarantee two-year warranty and free shipping I really believe this is a solid investment. Look, the bottom line is this. If I don't really love something, I'm not going to promote it on my show. I love my ExerFly, the results I'm getting with it, and I think you will as well. To learn more, head over to ExerFly.com so you can start building some savage athletic beasts in your gym. Again, that's ExerFly.com. Alex, man, thank you so much for coming on the show here today. Super excited to have you on. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. First of all, um, it's been been a been a fan of your your podcast for some time now, so it's great to be actually on this side of yeah. it. What is it? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of guests you had too. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think this is three hundred and fifty. Three I think is this episode. So, oh my! Well, well congratulations! Well thank you. you. Well done to you. Um, So a bit about myself, Um, grew up in Papua New Guinea um, in the Pacific Islands with a deeply religious, um, big family, Uh, came down eventually to Australia for boarding school um, and around, oh, geez, I think we've moved something like somewhere between 15 to 20 times interstate or internationally through my life. So yeah, so I've been around the world quite a lot and that's brought, brought its positives and it's and it's and probably it's negatives as well, really. But um, you know, envious of people who sort of grow up with friends in the one place for a long period of time and whatnot. That's always um, always something I'm envious about and glad that I can hopefully do that for my children now and have them a, a nice base to base to live in. Um, but yeah, my children, two two young boys, um, who are the absolute love of my life. Like a, hopefully a lot of us parents are. We juggle um, busy lives, but but always emphasise and prioritise family first. And um, yeah. that's what I try to do. And I've got a Uh, beautiful wife beautiful fiery Irish wife um, (laughs) who um, has also been by my side really for the whole journey Um, met her over in England when I was playing rugby as a young 20 21 year old and uh, I knew then that that was uh, my partner for life so I guess that's a bit of a snapshot um, Uh living in Sydney Australia at the moment and um, yeah enjoying life
1: and how old are the boys
0: Boys, uh, one's just turned fourteen, and the other one's ten. A little bit of a gap between oh, both of them, okay. yeah.
1: which
0: works. Which okay. works a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I'm, so, I'm,
1: um, I'm eleven and eight. So, well, daughter is eleven,
0: sons eight. So, yeah, man, oh, fun fantastic. times. It is great times, great times, and uh, you certainly do get a new perspective in life um, when we've all been very busy setting ourselves up and you know focused on our athletes and so on. You know that that kind of that kind of shifts, and it's actually for, for me. It, personally it's better for me it's better because i can go and you know close one door for a little while focus on the most important door opening Mm -hmm. and then go back again and be fresher when i'm back and, and and in the in the moment with with high performance yeah i love it man
1: very cool so talk to me what originally got you into the world of physical preparation how did you get started in all of this
0: yeah, sure. I, I can remember really clearly, actually. I reckon I was about 10 years of age and I was a swimmer. My, both my sister and I were very competitive swimmers, granted just in Papua New Guinea, but it was still, um, we were still able to represent our country at a young age and, and whatnot. And I remember my dad, for some reason, he was just very vested in our development, like a lot of dads are. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did it the right way. Uh, but he took us down to a gym um, in Papua New Guinea of all places. And I remember the exercise. I was on a seated row cable seated row I was doing the exercise and I, I could I got the shakes real quick I could see the demo of the guy that you know the fitness instructor or whatever and I got the, I just got it and I sat down and I had my chest out and my shoulders back and I, I pulled it and he was like wow never seen that before And I just remember there's this spark <laughs> yeah. and lit. I've never told anyone this story actually but there's a little spark there as a 10 year old that went this stuff is cool I like it and I remember the guy telling my sister you need to be really careful with your brother because little little boys have the tendency to do too much too early and i just remember that so vividly in my mind and the problem is for some reason i don't know what it was whether it was money or or whatever we we never actually went to the gym again and that was it that was mm. it and we just kept our swimming going and that was it and i've never actually asked my dad why we didn't keep going but then when i went down to boarding school so that was a fire that got lit there was yeah. just something there that connected well with me right yeah and then when i went to boarding school down in australia um, so 12 years old, 12, 13 in the first year of high school. Um, it was all about sport in these big Australian high schools. And um, there was a gym there and it was a fully equipped gym right back then. You know, he's talking late 80s, early 90s, fully equipped gym. And there was a guy in there, Mr. Cooper. And I mean, unbeknownst to me, Mr. Cooper was the strength and conditioning coach of that era back then. Mm-hmm. And not many schools had him. So I was very lucky to go to private school through my sport, my scholarship, not, not through any other thing, yeah. certainly not money. Not for sure. So um, anyway, I, this guy came up to me and he I was fiddling around the gym and he just gave me some clear instructions and some coaching and tried to deviate me away from the bench, the squat, and the things that we were all kind of doing and introduced me to Olympic lifting and I ended up doing Olympic lifting for his team eventually. But that was the spark, uh, the, the proper spark, the, the thing where I went, oh, you can do this for a job. Yeah. So I was only 13 went, is this your job? I was like, are you a health and PE teacher as well? Do you do anything else in school? He's like, no, this is my job. And I was like, I want to be you. And that was it. So 13 yeah. years old, I knew I wanted to be him. Didn't tell anyone until I was probably about 15. I remember my dad saying, okay, what do you want to be, son? You know, I was so heavily vested into my sport. That's where I was going to go yeah. with sport. And it, and sport did take me um, a, a good good life. But it was always, dad would always say, what else? You know, what else is there? What else do you want to be? And I, I knew then I was already. So I was like 10 years old, the fire was lit. 13, I went, oh my gosh, you can have a job. 14, 15, I was like, that's where I'm going to go. But I just don't know when I'm going to go there. Like, I don't know when I'm going to study. I don't know what path I can make to get into that position. But I know I want to be a fitness coach for a sporting team. That's where I want to be. So yeah, that's, that's that's kind of how it went. I love it. I love it.
1: So, so walk us through that because like, correct me if I'm wrong, you're like 20 years into this now, right? Like you've been doing this for a little while. And I love, I love hearing people's journeys. And I think it's good for young coaches too, right? Because especially with social media now, young coaches assume, oh man, I want to be in that job or I want to be there. And they're like a year out, right? They don't know how long it takes to evolve and to get to where you want to go. So would you walk us through your career path a little bit and some of the stops that you've had along the way?
0: Sure. Um, mine was different yeah i'm probably approaching you know getting up to 25 years now um though before so before i actually started in the industry there was a thing called sport that would actually get in the way right Mm -hmm. so you couldn't you couldn't do this industry if you were playing high level sport and i was at the time i was i played professional rugby and then moved down to semi-professional rugby and that's when i was able to really start you know Putting my efforts into the career, so to speak, yep. um, and so I started. So I, I, I back to the back to the start. You know, finished high school. Actually, didn't get the marks to get into um, what we had human movement degrees back then. Didn't get the marks, so I went to to up those marks. Um, and meanwhile, I was playing rugby, and I was a, on a on a on a good trajectory. Professional rugby had only just come in nineteen ninety four in Australia and England. And um, it was an exciting period of time. I was in the academy systems and professional systems all the way through as a youth youngster. And so then I shot off to uh, to England to play rugby. And so I stayed in England for 15 years actually playing rugby. It wasn't supposed to. It was only supposed to be a couple of years, but um, (laughs) either kept renewing contracts or moving different places in England for a new contract. And then I met my my Irish wife, and um, and so then it just it just morphed on and moved on quite quite significantly. But at some stage I had to make a decision. Um, either I was going to be sitting on the bench a lot and not getting, you know, the full starts, or I wasn't going to be playing premiership rugby. Um, so I had to make a decision on whether I could step away from full-time rugby and do part-time rugby as a semi-pro, earn a career still doing that um, and then move into my uh, professional life or start spreading my wings professionally. So my route back then was was pretty much into into private facility work. So I started doing that while I was playing rugby and I could, uh, support myself and start learning in um, in private facilities, essentially. I was working predominantly with athletes in that setup. So if you like, I was a personal trainer, yeah. but I wasn't doing personal training for the average um, person, the general pop. I was very much targeting my delivery um, into sportsmen. And it was just by chance that our facility was on these, you know, 20 pitches as a professional football club, soccer club across the road. So it was a real mecca hub of either um, grassroots sportsmen, right up to pro sportsmen. So I was able to get stuck in early in the passion that I knew. But now I wasn't qualified though either, right? And I had a tap on the shoulder one day at work. Yeah, all I had was a personal training qualification. I had a tap on the shoulder at work um, with a club that was opposite us, and it was a they were in the championship soccer um, in England at the time. And they tapped me on the shoulder and said do you want a job they saw what i was doing and they went do you want a job and it was just simply that easy back then <laughs> and so i said would love to within a week i'd signed a contract and i'd joined them and so i was then now working and then we got promoted that year to the english premier league wow. so all of a sudden you, your your reputation goes <laughs> like that well, you know you've had nothing to do with it right yeah. you just you've just come in and done your stuff and clearly the guys kick more goals than other people kick goals and that's why they're promoted right yeah but anyway that 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 ends up sending a, a big signal out in terms of where i'm going and what i'm doing but i'm still not qualified so i'm like right um that gig ends up coming to an end around after about oh, i was a good three and a half or four seasons and then i remember just telling my wife one night i'm like i need to get qualified, like. This is ridiculous. I need to start making a change here. Stop rugby or come down the leagues even lower now so I can make some money off rugby and then I've got to go to university. I've got to go to university. And I remember the one course that was on my mind was the CSCS. Yeah. I'm like, I can't get a CSCS unless I get a degree. And I need a CSCS to be able to work with, um, you know, be able to across the board get employed. I've yes. been tapped on the shoulder here, but that's not going to last forever. Like this this will die soon and it will be regulated one day. So Mm -hmm. I had foresight, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, I was lucky that the the um, missus, I promised her one New Year's Eve, we had a kiss at midnight and I said, hey, I've made a decision. I want to go to uni. I need your support though, because all I'm going to be able to do is play rugby. I'm going to have to give up everything, concentrate on uni, get my degree done. University degrees take three years, by the way. And she went, but I said, I promise you I'll be successful. Just back me in hundred percent, which is just a girlfriend at the time. She could have said, away, oh, loser. I'm <laughs> out of here. Right? But, but she backed me in and, um, and yeah, and she supported me, got the university uh, degree, and then I just kept on going master's and now PhD, and so that that route kept going. But from there, I went into rugby um, for a good four or five years as well, and then over into the English Institute of Sports System, which was my first real job, I reckon. That's what I classified. I've been working in pros, pro, pro sport. I've been, you know, in private facilities, but now – is where I really found out. I knew, bugger all. I didn't know what I thought I knew, and I was working with elite, truly elite coaches. Um, like some of the names I could name from there, from Mark Simpson to Duncan French to um, uh, Nick. Um, uh, there's, it's absolutely. I would say Pete Atkinson's. There's, a, there's a Alex Wolf. Oh my gosh, I could keep naming names and there'll be 12, 15 of some of the top coaches globally that you've heard of. And some aren't forefront and out there, obviously, to everyone. Others just do their work and just produce medals after medals after medals. But what a breeding ground that was. And so that was around 2009. Stayed with them for that 2012 uh, Olympic cycle. Shot back overseas, uh, back home, finally, and started working in the Australian Institute system, the Network Institute system here in Australia. Um, Then over to the Middle East, again in institutes. Back to Australia in pro sport with the uh, with our most professional our biggest professional game, which is uh, the AFL, the Australian Football League. Um, spent a, um, almost four seasons with that sport, and then now into uh, the institute system again in Australia. For your listeners, institute systems are Olympic Olympic sports essentially, but. Um, Categorized athletes. So the athletes in the institutes that we work for are either podium, podium potential, podium ready type athletes, and we're supporting them completely with um, from coaches to facilities to to all the scientific princi- uh, disciplines that we can think of in the medical side of things. We all work collaboratively to ideally produce medals. And uh, a lot of our, a lot of the institutes are government funded in some way, uh, so that's where I am now at the New South Wales Sports Institute. Um, And that's my journey in a snapshot about half the time in pro sport, half the time in institute sport and scattered throughout there, which I haven't talked about is some technical coaching in both rugby and and track and sprinters um, and also some academia throughout as well. So it's been a it's been a good journey, quite mixed, um, which has been really helpful.
1: I would imagine for a guy like you, it helps too, right? Keeps the energy up, and I mean, just constantly learning and in those new environments—that's probably really invigorating for somebody like you. Would be my guess.
0: Yeah, I need that, mate. Um, And yeah, you can probably tell by the movement. Maybe it's come (laughs) come through my my growing up and moving around. But yeah, I do get itchy feet. I need to be challenged regularly. Um, My challenge at the moment is, you know, I'm 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 sitting um, as, as an executive at the moment. That's that's my main role. I sit in the executive. Um, with the New South Wales sports uh, New South Wales Institute of sport um, make big decisions on policy we've got a 2032 home games coming up so and we're you know the biggest institute in Australia at the moment so we'll we'll have a big drive and a big say and what we're going to do there and how we're going to do it and um, which is going to be really exciting uh, I manage a big team of you know 40 staff members and that's going to grow even more um, with everyone from oh, you name it nutrition uh, biomechanics performance analysis physiology strength and conditioning nutrition and the like so that's a challenge in itself managing you know um and uh and and having a big big handle and input on strategy moving forward so that challenges me now um takes me off the coaching floor a little bit too much which is my my main one would the love of my life yeah uh, but um certainly developing me in other areas that will um that will have an impact for sure i love it man
1: Well, let's dive in a little bit because I've got a ton of different topics that I want to cover with you here today. And I'm going to leave this first one kind of open-ended because I want you to take this in whatever direction you want. But I would just love to hear a little bit about your assessment process and some of the things that you find value in assessing with your athletes and the people that you're working with.
0: Sure. I think the first thing is to start with the sport for me. Um, and it's, if we talk scientific terms, it's, it's around something we call a deterministic model. Um, I think if we talk more simpler terms, it's a needs analysis, right? It's a needs yeah. analysis of what that sport is. But it's a, it's a pretty deep dive into the biomechanics and the physiology. So, you know, looking at the kinetics and the kinematics of that sport, absolutely crucial. So we have to have that understanding, first of all, of what that sport is. And we need a measure of success in that sport. Right. And Mm -hmm. often it's, although it's win loss is the important thing, right? But there's got to be something else there from a strength and conditioning, a physical development standpoint that also assists or predicts success more often than not. So what we're doing there is looking at whatever that performance outcome is, whether it's a a reading that we get from a GPS or whether it's simply a stopwatch, um, depending on what type of sport it is, what is success in that sport? Once we know what that is, well, that's what we're aiming for all the time. And it's something measurable. It's something we can attain, something a little bit more tangible than a win or a loss, something we can grasp there, right? Then the next step back is to find out an assessment that is so strongly related to that performance that it's almost that performance from a mechanical standpoint and a physiological standpoint. So it might be some sort of ergometer assessment, okay? So let's say you get out in a boat and you're rowing and there's all these other variables that come into rowing really well. It looks like a simple sport. It's a highly complex sport, really, mm. um, when you think about all the other things that are going on, timing with the boat, timing with the other um, oarsmen. Um, I've never worked in rowing, by the way, so I'm absolutely <laughs> talking out of my But the weather conditions, all these sort of things, there's so many things, the rhythm, everything that comes in the boat. But if we can get them onto an ergometer, on a rowing ergometer, we can get a whole heap of different outputs there to understand what they're they're actually like. Very, very similar to the sport, but not quite the sport, if you know what I mean. What that gives us is it gives us a nice measure at the end that we can start everything we do, we can start ascertaining whether it's having an effect on that assessment. So we have our performance at the very top of the apex of a pyramid. The next level down we have a performance assessment which would be something like this some sort of ergometer type test and then we look down another layer onto the diagnostics it's a a level i call the diagnostics where we're looking deeper at actual physical qualities now we're starting to test multiple physical qualities whether that be um, the expression of um, rate of force development against load or whether it be just the expression of rate of force development itself or whether it be um, maximal force output, um, or whether it be uh, reactive strength or whatever, but an actual physical quality that we're testing that we know is a reliable measure um, and it's, it's valid to performance. We then can have a look at what actual physical quality impacts the performance assessment, let's say the rowing ergometer, and then what the actual performance is. So now we have a whole bunch of physical qualities that we can test and go, this is down, this is high, this is good, this is bad. And the reason we're going to know that is A, we have research to help us, but B, we're going to collect that with our cohort first of all. So our 20 athletes in that sport, we're going to go and collect all these measures that A are determined by the deterministic model. So whatever the needs analysis is. So we're not going to necessarily go and test reactive strength in a rower. You might, but you right. might not, right? So you choose your test related to that deterministic model, and then you check your cohort and see what's good, what's bad, are the best exhibit this quality worst exhibit that quality oh okay you start formulating in your mind what's important what's not at least in your your cohort you then have your research to the side of it don't trust the research i that's bad of me being a sports scientist saying that <laughs> don't trust the research look deeper into the research use it as a guideline the truth is your cohort believe it or not as long as you're doing scientific rigor around your assessments then that's the truth you can't trust the research just use that as a guide and then over time, you go and ask the rowing club down the road. I don't know why I'm sticking with rowing. I should really change because I'll catch <laughs> myself out of a, a sport. I don't know. Um, but, you know, you go to the rowing club down the road or you speak internationally to the, the, the German German team and you ask them what their KPIs around. There. And all of a sudden you start building a battery of diagnostics that are really important to the sport. And you start growing your cohort numbers to understand more and more what's related to performance. And then if you step back a row underneath that, we have something, I call it simply lifting strength, right? 1RMs, okay? Mm -hmm. Or training-based KPIs. So that's in the gym, your squat, your bench press, your bench pull, your whatever, right? They're not that important, hence they're so far down, but they are what we use to train. So we have to have a grasp on them. We have to understand um, what a velocity might be at a particular lift um, and whether that's important or not. We might need to understand a little bit more around a strength quality um, based on a barbell lift or not. Either way, we're going to need these to prescribe our training more effectively. So they become an important part of what a battery or an assessment criteria assessment matrix is. And then you go one step low and it's the absolute base and it's the athletic competencies. Again, you can replace uh, the name of each stage with whatever name. I always get in trouble for naming stuff. Incorrectly, or people don't like, or whatever, but it makes sense to me. So athletic competencies. It's um now if I shift from rowing and talk about running, maybe maybe it is a, a an endurance calf calf raise capacity on your single leg. And we have criteria there. We know that if you're getting up to 25 to 30 reps, slow controlled, with dorsiflexion, full plantar flexion, you're probably in a good state where your calf and your soleus complex, the, the surae complex is in a good, stable, strong position um, to handle body weight loads. And so you have all your KPIs there at this base level athletic competencies. Athletic competency might be a Nordic hamstring curl. It might be um, a, a type of movement assessment Um, I'm not going to name a movement assessment battery as such, but just maybe something that you see is for a squash player in a deep lunge position is important. Well, how do they do that without the stress, without the forces, without the environment? Are they actually able to hold good positions in there? And that's you're starting to understand how they move just generally from an athletic competency standpoint. So it's a two-part one. It's movement ability for sure. It might be movement under barbells and stuff. Absolutely. It might be on broomsticks. It might be other things like that. Or and it and it is some form of capacity as well. So it's a test of the structure, like a calf raise or a Nord a camstring curl. Um, And now when that pyramid is set, you now have, and it sounds exhausted, but it really isn't. And a lot of these assessments I suggest are done in training, right? Most of them are done in training. Um, If you're going to go, so at some level there, you'll find that you might be looking deeper and looking at fascicles and you might be looking at tendon cross-sectional area and you might be going deeper and deeper into the actual machinery to see what it looks like. And obviously, you'll need assist, You'll need equipment to do that. I've been blessed to have equipment to be able to do that. So then now you've got this whole battery. So when you make your decisions, you can shoot with a sniper rifle rather than this shotgun approach. So now we start going, okay, this is not. And ultimately, at the top of the apex is performance and our performance assessment. That's what we're in most control of, that performance assessment, where it's a close, whether it's a 10-meter sprint timed on the timing gates or, or um Um, or an approach jump, say, for example, um, on a vertex uh, approach and and jump. That's our performance assessment. And then we can come back each stage and go, well, what's lacking? Is it maximal force? Is it rate of force development? Is it reactive strength? Is it force against load? What is it? Boom. Next one. Oh, no, they're all good. What's the next one? Oh, lifting. You know what? They're just poor at lifting. You know, (laughs) maybe that's the biggest major buck. Or you might go, do you know what? We've got an absolute weapon here. Who's, which happens a lot, right, where you've got this performance assessment at the top that they're amazing at, performance itself on the apex, they're high-quality at. Performance assessment, it shows that they can actually do it in, the, in a closed environment, so it's not decision-making. It's not um, um, awareness and timing and stuff in the actual sport domain. They've actually just got it as well as a, as a performance assessment on the, again, like I say, the, the ergometer. But now what's happening, and diagnostically they're great too. They've got all the physical qualities we need. Lifting strength, they're pretty good in the gym, but I'll tell you what, they can't stand on one leg. Ah, and they keep getting injured. Ah, okay. So now all of a sudden the program morphs to go, you know what, they've got all those things lined up, but they're struggling down the bottom end and they keep getting injured. So my focus is going to be more on the bottom end there on these athletic competencies. Flip that again, You at any stage in the continuum, you can say, okay, well, they're really good at athletic competencies. They're really good at lifting. They're a beast in the gym diagnostics they're pretty good but hold on performance assessment on the rowing ergo nothing's coming out now we're testing all the right stuff but nothing's coming out the performance assessment what needs to change there well then your mind as a good coach might be do you know what maybe less time in the gym maybe less time focus on the on the physical qualities and actually more energy put into the technical development of the sport and so with with each of these categories you can start pinpointing on where you want to be able to focus your training to essentially have the, the um, benefit at the top of the apex.
1: Yeah, I love that, man. And this is perfect, because this is going to spin off into a couple different areas that I want to touch on. And, you know, one area that I think we're we're slowly kind of coming around in is this idea of just like pure old school strength or force development. And again, I think you and I grew up in a pretty similar time where like strength was the cure all for everything, right? Like if you just got stronger, you were going to be whatever fitter faster more explosive and to a degree that generally works so what i would love to hear from you is you know what athletes should see that that emphasis who need that force or that strength development and maybe what athletes have you seen or assessed that just don't need any more force output and need to focus on other areas
0: yeah sure look um it's one of the first questions i want to answer as soon as i start with a squad um, because it is, it is bread and butter. Like you said, we come up and we do know that it does solve a lot of problems, but not all. So I want to ascertain that really, really quickly. The problem is, how do you ascertain it? Um, ultimately, the squads you you go into, are, what you're inheriting is based on what they've been doing previously. So if you have in your mind, your strength is a, is a bilateral back squat and they've not done it. Well, you're, you're setting them up for failure to start with and you will be led down the wrong track. Because you'll be back squatting them, and they'll do 1.5 times body weight. You'll be like, "Ah, my criteria is 1.75; they're not good enough." But if you actually had the the open mindedness, if you like, to think about another exercise or one that they've done previously or one that they can express their forces in, you might be your mind might change very, very quickly. I, I did this actually, just as an example. I did this with an the AFL squad I worked with recently. I came in, realised. They could all back squat, they could all deadlift. They'd been lifting with a good coach. But if I formed my opinion on their lift, I would have got it wrong more times than I would have got it right. So instead, I actually went unilateral and we'll probably speak about that a bit later. But yeah. went unilateral and some of them knowing and did other ways of assessing actually have they got force generating capabilities. Have they got strong legs? Boom. Yeah, I know that if you can do that, you've got strong legs just because you can't do it in a back squat doesn't bother me any, any way, shape or form. So it would allow me to understand who needed more strength and who didn't. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've worked with squads where, or, or athletes, individual athletes where, you know, I've already inherited them and they're already squatting you know, over double body weight um, and we've gone and pushed them over the years to get up to 2.8 times body weight, almost bordering three times body weight, deep squatting. And, and I've had no difference in the outputs. You know, this one particular athlete was a sprinter. No difference in sprinting performance. Um, and, and a lot of the KPIs as well, like no change in power, um, often, plenty of but I'll tell you what, plenty of soreness, plenty of pain, plenty <laughs> of scaredness. fear from me as a coach. Um, a couple of little close to, um, close mistakes sometimes. but uh, look, I'm, I'm worried because I'm worried because I've spoken about this before and I, I do sell a concept of not necessarily pushing this boat out too far. But I also don't want to, I see the pendulum swing so much now. Yes we were so heavily in uh, this max strength side of things I still see on the beautiful social media which is you know, the uh, invitation to everyone's deep deepest thoughts um, <laughs> I see that' still there with with a lot of coaches um, particularly over your part of the world yeah uh, that's the medicine and the and the, and the answer to all, all things that's where I think whoa I need to help you swing the pendulum if that's my duty I don't know um, but then there's all the lots of young coaches now who are more modern thinking who are now thinking, uh, Alex let's just do isometrics and do bosch coordinate drills and I'm, oh no like that athlete <laughs> needs strength he's weak she here she is weak so uh, i'm i'm scared to 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 in any of the stuff i do i don't talk in absolutes ever um hopefully uh so i want to say that you need to know when and and you need to test it and one of the best ways of testing whether someone needs maximal strength is to do it isometrically and that's either an isometric mid-thigh pull or isometric squat. And the reason why it's such a good test is it's devoid of technical ability. It's devoid of um, uh, you know, fear of lifting, which everyone's got. Even the very, very elite, they have less fear, but they still have fear of lifting at some stages. They'll override that and overcome that, but there will be some level of fear, whether that be subconscious or not, of lifting. This is an expression of force pure in its nature with no technical ability. You either put out into a force plate or you don't. And um, I've been a culprit of the past, um, personally being a great squatter. And then I go out in the isometric mid thigh pull and pull, or isometric squat, and the numbers aren't as beautiful as they were as my squat numbers because I'm built for squatting, right? Right. Um, you know, five eight. I've got short femurs. I've got a short back. You know, everything. You know. So this this can be really misleading when we start going down this. Now, what's for sure is most young kids need to develop strength. Yes. Most of them you are just not there yet, so you need to start developing strength in these young kids, but you do it gradually and sensibly. And when we, no doubt, when we speak about isometrics, so there's, there's other ways of doing with them rather than pushing out the boat too far. The other thing you have to consider is what is your strength bias? If you're biased on the back squat and that's all you do, well, guess what? They're going to get back squat numbers up quicker and quicker, right? But that's not giving you true strength development. That's getting you better at a back squat. Yes, they're developing strength, but they're also developing the coordinative ability and the synchronicity of putting a back squat together. And the reason why I say this, it's a really important point to consider. At some stage in someone's strength development, strength becomes less about the actual output and more about the coordinative abilities. So the synergistic involvement, the intermuscular, intermuscular coordination, these aspects start shooting up really, really steadily. And at that point, at that point, when that starts outweighing it, it's hard to tell unless you, while you're doing it, you use an isometric test, then you can tell, ah, their squat's gone up by 20 kilos in the last six months, but their isometric mid pull hasn't. What's changed? It's not their force-generating capacity anymore. It's their ability to squat better and the more coordinate it demands neuromuscularly to squat better. So that's when you go strong is strong enough. And that's I say that in inverted commas, which are, yeah, which won't see, sure. um, but that's a great indicator.
1: Dude, that's one of the best answers I've heard about that. And I think at the end of the day, one thing we always have to remember is like, what is what is the end goal, right? So you talked about your sprinter. The end goal for the sprinter is to run really fast, right? So if you continue to see... His back squat go up and up and up, yet he's not running faster or perhaps even running slower. I think you've very clearly stated, like, he's strong enough. He's not getting any more out of this. We need to shift our emphasis or shift our focus to something else that will hopefully give
0: us a bigger return on our investment. So crucial, so crucial just to keep measuring performance. And again, if you can't actually do performance, go for that next performance assessment, like I said, whether that be a radar gun with the sprinter to see his max velocity rather than actually 100-meter sprint, right? Yep. So there's there's ways around doing it without actually doing the performance to see whether your program's working. Um, and the, the biggest thing, one of the biggest things I see in our industry is our biases, our own biases on what we know works. And it, it's worked five or six times out of 10 athletes, then that becomes our go-to. And we just implement it everywhere and we'll stick with it so vigorously and defend it on Twitter, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> black and blue. And we'll, we'll, if someone attacks it, we'll, we'll say it, it's like, they've hurt our family. Like it's that <laughs> passionate. Yeah. But if, if there's one thing I'd like to ever get across um, throughout my career and what I'm sharing is not to talk in absolutes and to have a toolbox have multiple methods, have a toolbox. So when everyone does a mentorship program with me, whether that's privately through my business or people I mentor at work, I always tell them, don't just get mentored by me, get mentored by another three or four people as well. Don't just know my way. Um, I, I feel quite comfortable in saying my way isn't going to be one way though. So you'll know multiple ways and you'll, have to, you'll get to learn um, that you'll have a library and by using assessments, you'll be able to make decisions. And then at one stage, if we stay with each other long enough What's going to really be cool is you're actually not going to need those assessments. You're going to see the athlete after talking with them, after, you know, spending a week with them, you're going to go, I know what this athlete needs. And you're going to know from a psycho- psychosocial perspective, and you're going to have a pretty good idea from a training perspective. Uh, this guy's a high-low training pro person every day of the week. Oh, this guy needs a bit more volume. Oh, and I keep saying guys, but, and this girl might need more strength. And you'll start getting an idea. You'll watch the move in your sport. Um, and again, my sports science colleagues will be, will be, um, I'm turning over in their graves here, listening to me talk like this, but it's that coaching intuition that will come out eventually as well, and that only comes from time in the, um, in, at the in the trenches and seeing thousands, literally thousands of athletes. Yeah, um, but not just seeing them for what you got in front of you, but digging digging deeper into them in terms of what they do, how they do it, what their numbers say. Um, looking, watching, being down at the sport, you'll start getting this battery where your intuition becomes as powerful as your assessments. I hope I haven't gone no. off an agenda too much.
1: No, I love it. I love it. And, and again, I, I think this next question will kind of feed seamlessly into this because speaking of Twitter wars, uh, one of my favorites yeah. of all time was the double versus like single leg or split stance <laughs> activities, right? And I know you've researched this. You've dug deep into this. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and hear kind of where you're at with this. Like what athletes would you focus more with the bilateral lifts on and which athletes would you focus more on your split stance activities? And again, now now that you've already kind of fleshed this out, I feel like it's kind of uh, it's kind of self explanatory. You put them on and you test them. But I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, sure. It's again, it's a great one. It's um, I agree with you. It's a it's a yeah. I'm the unilateral guy. I'm the bilateral guy. Like there <laughs> is no it's rubbish. Um, they are they are both exercises and and ways. And and there's a rhyme and a reason for both. And you know if. if in a simplistic terms, um, I would have, uh, I normally, if we're looking through a, an athletic career, let's say we're starting serious training around you know, 12, 13, 14 years of age, and then we're ending our sporting, depending on the sport, but we're ending our sporting, you know, prime time at, say, 30, roughly. Well, I normally run an inverted U in terms of how I focus um, unilateral and bilateral lifting. So uh, as a youth, as a young developing athlete, the more, more emphasis is on the unilateral work at that young age group. And then as they come and they've earned the right, the top of the U is more bilateral. And then as they progress down through their career, they're back over into more unilateral focus. And again, that's trying to put um, a schematic in people's minds of how generally I might look at it. But remember, I'll look at the individual every single time and find out where they need to go with this, okay? Now, the reason why these generalities exist is because we captured something like 10,000 athletes um, in one of the institutes I worked with, youth developing athletes from the age of 12 to 17. And of all of those data points, and we measured everything in some sort of movement screening-based work, without a doubt, 90 to 95% of those athletes every single year would generally be a red, if, if we do a green, amber and red marking, they would generally be a red on the unilateral work whether that was some sort of stability task, whether it was a split stance um, squat or uh, sorry lunge or whether it was a unilateral squat, whatever it was, that was where they failed the most. They never failed on their bilateral squat like five percent would fail right? Like, right but 95 was overwhelming. and it's actually one of the well, <laughs> I came in this institute and it's actually one of the reasons why, why are we still testing this And they're like, oh no every, every three times a year we test them a why but we know the answers. Like it's there. And we're also coaching them every day. So why don't we just coach them rather than exhaust all these man hours? Why don't we just coach them? And so I managed to shift them and actually stop this thing they'd been doing for 10 years. (laughs) They stopped doing this assessment, which was great. (laughs) So so we then just focused on unilateral work, right? Ironed out the kinks, um, essentially got them to earn the right to then move on to their bilateral lifts. Now, that didn't mean we were only doing one and not the other, they'd do it all together, but the emphasis would be more on the unilateral. So they would still be learning with a barbell on their back to squat. They'd be still doing all these. they'd be gradually loading on them, but it would occupy you know 10% of the program Um, rather than 90%, if we just talk about lower limb loading, right? 90% of the program would be that. And then it would shift over time. And as they got to 17, 18, you know, then that would would very much shift into the bilateral squats. And and then they would do bilateral squats more so when they're in that academy age group. Uh, So like your college age group sort of um, of, um, level. And the reason why, it's not because they they, well, let me start again. They should. They should have a movement library to be able to do anything. Because they're not always going to be with me. They're not always going to be with you, Mike. Yeah. You know, they'll move on. So you're not doing them justice if you just stick with what your tried and tested is. Because then they'll go into another environment and they'll fail. Right? Yeah. That failure might not be. Um, might be means that they're struggling to bilateral squat now, and then they're getting hurt because they're trying to do that. They're getting a lot sore than everyone else, or they're picking up little back injuries and stuff. Particularly if their coaches have got a, a one to thirty coach athlete ratio and then they get in trouble right so yep. if we're being holistic we're giving them a whole range of exercises to work with but when we get to that bilateral stage one of the reasons why we keep bilateral work is it is the power exercises a lot of times are bilateral some of our big key drivers whether that be olympic lifting work whether they be trap bar hex bar squat jumping that sort of stuff they're all big bilateral lifts um and so and they're big drivers and they're known big drivers for the development of power so if we're not doing bilateral work and we're only doing unilateral work, we're probably setting them up slightly for a bit of failure when it comes to these big explosive double leg lifts. The other thing is time. Like there's so many factors, right? Well, you're doing one leg and then another leg, you're multiplying the time. Yes. So there are w- rhymes and reasons why you're doing bilateral lifts. So I don't want to talk anyone out of that. Um, uh, but certainly, and this is where it gets exciting when you're in the pros, when you're at the real top of the top of the table people, right? The the real elite are absolute masters at their sport earning millions of dollars playing their sport now with them you have to understand what's worth the risk and what's worth the reward like what that balance is and now more often than not and i know people argue black and blue i can tell you there's a twinge in the back there's something that happens when you're squatting really really heavy multiple times You'll say that you're the best squat coach in the world and nothing ever happens to athletes. It. And I call you, I'll call you on that every day of the week. There is, um, if, they're, if they're performing at the very high end um, and they're week in, week out and you're back squatting them really heavy, there's stuff going on. They're either not telling you or you're being um, conservative with the truth, shall we say. Yes. Okay, so the risk-reward is just too great. And when you understand, and like the research that we've done, when you understand that you can get much higher loading on one leg um, with less external loading than you would think and get the same sort of outputs in terms of force outputs, then quite quickly your mind can shift to go, do you know what? I'm going to get bang for buck getting unilateral. I'm going to get better buying with this athlete and I've reduced risk substantially. So this athlete now can get the loads I need. He's in, he or she is in the mindset because they don't feel this massive load on their shoulders anymore. So they're going to put out more for me Um, and uh, it becomes a much better alternative then. And ultimately, when people get old and they've been battered, they've been at the coalface of their sport for years and years and years. Do you know what? It's a blessing in disguise for them. And I've seen this in 30-year-old, 32, 33, 34-year-old athletes where they're all of a sudden, they've just stagnated, right, for the last five years in terms of their counter-movement, counter-movement jump power, the isometric mid-thigh pull. They've just stagnated. There's nothing really changing. They just bubble away within these standard deviations. Boom, put a year of unilateral work in, bang. It's like they've gone back five or six years. Hmm. Uh, it really is that stark. I would name names, but I won't. I'll keep that <laughs> quiet for now until he retires. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay, now, I told you up
1: front, I'm not going to make this all about podcasts because if anybody wants that variation of a podcast, all they have to do is go to the Google machine and they'll get about 50 Alex Natera isometric only podcasts. But it also wouldn't be an Alex Natera podcast if we didn't at least mention isometrics. So let's start really base level here. What role can isometrics play in developing your athletes?
0: Yeah. Look, that, can I th- say thank you first of all, Mike? Actually, <laughs> using this podcast as something a bit more complete in a in a physical performance coach's battery rather than just ISOs. I was, yes. I was telling you before the show started how everyone thinks they'll come into my gym and they'll just see an hour of ISOs, right? No, <laughs> it's not the case at all. Again, it's about finding out what is needed. Now, it just happens to be that ISOs, yeah, they they seem to tick a lot of boxes a lot of the times. And you know, we talk about. these older athletes, like I was telling you about just just now, you know, well, ISOs actually help them significantly, especially if their bodies are banged up and they've had, you know, 10 or 12 years in the cold face of their sport. Um, But yeah, look, in basic terms, you get a high neuromuscular load, and that's from the nervous system and also the tissue when you're using isometric strength training strategies. Essentially, minimal soreness. Um, There are some soreness, there is some soreness, people forget that. um, But more often than not, they're, they're, very mild compared to any other strategies and they're probably of the very first session and then they just never never occur again and i've tried this where i've given massive volumes to try and induce soreness in someone who's already accustomed and it just does not occur if they just wake up um geez we've done filming only lately where this poor athlete had to be all day doing (laughs) isos right and he woke up the next morning went oh no i actually felt okay i was like you're kidding me you probably did seven sessions of isos I reckon, <laughs> and and still wake up uh, work up feeling great so anyway um but the other thing is similar to the isometric testing right there's no need for technical mastery um you can experience these high loadings without years and years of developing um technical prowess or mastery at a lift so that means a A young kid a young developing athlete rather than going how are we going to load this person you know these young athletes the biggest load they get is from their sport right Mm -hmm. because there's no way you're spotting two times body weight there's no way you're doing well some crazy people might do high intensity plyometrics with them but often more than not the snc is is just slowly developing things but they're not getting high tensile stress high loadings like sport would emit. this fills that gap so all of a sudden you get to be able to express really high um, levels of muscle tension and neuromuscular outputs um on something that you just don't need to earn the right for you can just push and you're capped out at whatever you can cap out with so there's some of the in in a a real short um short elevator pitch i guess that's a that's a nutshells of isometric training
1: i love it now you know as well as i do as soon as something like isos catch on now everybody is talking about it but you know with varying levels of understanding of how to apply it, right? And one of the things that I find a lot of people doing is they just lump all ISOs into this group, right? Overcoming, yielding, they don't differentiate. They just say, yeah, ISOs are great. So what I would love to hear from you is, number one, the difference between overcoming and yielding ISOs for somebody that may not be familiar with that terminology or that, that kind of uh, delineation. And number two, when you might focus on using one versus the other.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, And just so I don't get this wrong, let me start this for you, for your listeners. Uh, Overcoming is pushing. So PIMA, I might refer to it as pushing isometric muscle actions, PIMA. Mm -hmm. And yielding is holding ISOs. So HIMA, holding isometric muscle action. And you know what? Um, The reason why I use PIMA and HIMA is, well, the research uses PIMA and HIMA, so pushing and holding, um, but I also used to keep getting confused about overcoming and yielding. Okay. Hold on. Which is, that, which is that one, that one? No, that one, that no, one. no, hold on. Yield, you're yielding, overcoming, you're overcoming, but you're both overcoming. So I used to get really confused. I was like, you know what? I'll stick with the research. The research says Pima and himma. I'll do that like just because it's easier for my, my simple brain. Right. Yeah. So yes, there is a stark difference between pushing and holding isometrics or again, overcoming and yielding. Overcoming you are essentially pushing into an immovable object. It cannot be moved, right? And when you're talking about yielding or holding, HIMA isometrics, you are now the movable object. So if you eventually apply more and more weight, you will decompress. So you will shorten, your levers will shorten, your muscles will essentially flex, um, uh, sorry, ex- sorry, flex, yeah. sorry, extend. Yeah. You will extend, your muscles will extend. So... With that in mind, a holding isometric, movable, pushing isometric, immovable. And they're the simplest ways of looking at it. Now, pushing isometrics are much higher in forces because you don't have any time constraints in being able to apply force when the load comes to you. You can just go and build into it as hard as you can. So we normally look at those pushing isometrics, the pimmers, as maximal isometrics. And then the holding or yielding isometrics are normally submaximal. Okay. So you don't generally get up to hundred percent I've tried this, right? I've tried 100 percent When you when you measure a pushing isometric and you get that on a force plate and you understand the load, the external load required to match that force, you then apply that to the system. And it is, you you're 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 holding for you know, five, six seconds max. Some of the real, real legends are holding for maybe 12, 15, and then that's it. So you don't generally use those um, those sort of 100% loads with yielding, um, yielding isometrics. Pushing isometrics are very much, from a neural, neural's perspective, are very much follow pathways similar to concentric movements. That's how it all activates. You're pushing, and when you think about it, that's what you are. You're trying to extend. Okay, yeah. you're trying push concentrically. Now, when you look at yielding or holding, hema isometrics, you're trying to stop again from flexing, your joints flexing. So you're stopping going eccentric. And if the load becomes too high, you will become eccentric. So you will sink down. So in that way, the neural strategies there are very much eccentric strategies. And this is backed up by research, right? It's not just me thinking out loud, right? So they're backed up by research. They're actually quite different contractions. And that's not technically correct because they're not contractions, right? They're right. actions. Muscle yes, actions. muscle action, sure. <laughs> okay. So there are two main reasons and main differences. Now, the, then when we look further into something, we go, you know what? When we look at the research that holding isometrics seem to induce a little bit more soreness and they seem to be more susceptible to fatigue, okay? So when you're thinking about putting programs together, they're probably two key elements, And what I want to do is back that up by saying nothing compared to traditional training. So this is all relative to isometric training, right? When we look at comparing traditional training, then it's a different kettle of fish. These are always better in terms of, you know, um, energetics and and energy costs and fatigue and soreness. But relatively speaking, within the isometric world, the holding isometrics seem to elicit more fatigue. So they, they decline in force quicker and slightly more soreness whereas the pushing isometrics are very different in that regard. Both of them, though, if we're going to get really technical, without scientific, but just technical on the the actual muscle actions, neither of them are actually isometric, right? Right. Okay? The muscle is continually contracting and relaxing all the time, but more so in the holding isometrics. So there's more what we call oscillations in force, and muscle contractions going on and off, on and off, on and off with the holding isometric. And that's probably one of the reasons why there's more fatigue, right? right. There's more contractile element movement. There's more um, more flexion um, of, of, the, of the fibers itself, right? Uh, contraction, should I say, of the fiber itself. Now, the, the other thing to consider is besides these mini oscillations that occur in both of the exercises, what also happens with this t- tissue, this muscle tendon unit, it's a visoelastic tissue. Um, and what happens is we have a concept called tendon creep. So once you hold an isometric muscle action, the tendon starts elongating. But you perceptually are trying to keep the same constant angle. So the way you do that subconsciously is your muscle fibers contract. Okay, so they're continually contracting every time the tendon lengthens. And that tendon lengthens um, for quite a while, actually, right? So there's, so it's never a pure isometric action. And the only reason I'm saying this is just in case some soothsayers that have been massively critical of an article I just wrote on quasi-isometrics, pseudo isometrics, they were basically going, well, where's the line here? Where does it stop? You know, when are they isometric? When are, It's an isometric, it's an isometric. And I'm like, it's actually not. It's actually not an isometric. And that's probably the reason why there is transfer to dynamic performance because it's not truly isometric. With these holdings as well because there's constant oscillations it's actually more of a coordinate demand so you're doing holding stuff you have to consider that as well there's more cognitive load there's more um, proprioception there's more whole bunch of things going on to execute that holding better than the pushing so when you're looking at putting programs together and you want low fatigue low soreness um uh low load in terms of just you know proprioception and cognitive load and and skill and coordination you go for your pushing isometrics you also go for your pushing isometrics is if the action that you're trying to prepare for is more of a concentric dominant action, say acceleration or block starts or um, a spike jump in volleyball. Again, yep. speaking like a, about what I don't know. It's um, <laughs> so more eccentric in nature, like running. So, you know, when you're running and you've got your mass falling from a height on the ground, you're trying to stop yourself going eccentric. So you're trying to stop your head following your body and your spine straight through down onto the ground. You're, and you're what you're doing is you're putting out the requisite force to stop that occurring. That's a holding isometric, right? So you're trying to hold and stop it's going eccentric. So then that, what you're preparing for, and that's why Run Specific Isometrics does that, and it also does pushing isometrics as well. So pushing and holding. So there's a whole range of reasons why you might use one rather than the other. One last one, sorry. One yeah. last one I think is just important, so I'll put it out there is you have to also consider this. When you're doing holding isometrics, when you prescribe the load, so whatever it is, say it's 150 kilos on a single leg stance position, right? If you prescribe that load, you're going to give that to the athlete to to accomplish. But we know through velocity-based training and other metrics that we use to see what an athlete's ready for on that particular given day, they might not be at 150 kilos to elicit the Mm. RPE you would have wanted them to. They just might not be there. So what you've gone and done is applied a load that actually that RPE is a nine or a 10 today when it should have been a seven. Yep. But with pushing isometrics, you can only ever take it to where you can take it to. So it becomes quite contained in terms of what the athlete's able to do on that given day. So multiple ways, but um, yeah, that's uh, it's probably a whole day of talking about that really that we, uh, <laughs> or we a whole course, into. right? Or a whole course. Or of a isometrics. Whole course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Plug I love it away. Plug away. It. I love it. We'll,
1: we'll talk about that. Okay. So years ago, I've listened to numerous podcasts you've been on, and one of my favorites—I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was Just Fly. I don't remember now. But you were talking about power endurance training. Now, I was fascinated by this because, look, we've all talked about just power, right? Power development. We've all talked about endurance. So we talked about them independently, but you were one of the first people that talked about putting them together. And I remember listening to this and it was one of those moments where you want to like smack yourself in the face, just be like, wow, how did I never think about this? So talk to me a little bit about power endurance, power endurance training, and maybe like just give an example or two, like some tools that you might have in the toolbox for starting to build this with your athletes.
0: Yeah, sure. Another another very very big topic that I could probably talk a day on. Uh, so this is just to give you just to give you some insight and your your listeners an insight. This is actually my PhD. Um, yes. So I'll I'll be uh, I'll be finishing that very very soon. Um, you start off a PhD and you want to answer every question there is in the world right on your PhD. Um, but then sooner or later you start realizing you just got to get it done right, and then yes. sometimes um pandemics hit not often but they do as well and that stuffs up. so i'm not going to answer every question um, that what this power endurance or repeat power ability i prefer to call it and i'll tell you why in a second um, i won't be able to answer every question in my phd but the beauty is it's been a labor of love for me for best part of 15 years now and just to give a really brief, brief background i started off trying to dispel this it didn't make sense to me um it made me twitch from a strength coach perspective and it made me twitch even harder from a physiology perspective. It just didn't make sense. Let's just do strength and power. Let's jack up the engine and then let's l- teach it how to repeat better with, you know, cardio respiratory activity kind of thing. Right. Yep. Um, but it was trying to dispel this group of athletes that came into my care. They were, they were pro athletes, came over on loan for a while and they were telling me they needed power endurance, they called it at the time. And I didn't get it, and then uh, eventually tried it. Right? I eventually tried it, and then spoke to their coach, who was who was Craig White. Um, some of you, he was one of the best in the world, to be honest. And he's just gone off the radar from a, a strength coach perspective <laughs> at the moment. Still in the industry, but he just doesn't do the coaching. I believe. I think he personally coaches people, as in, you know, personal professional coaching. Yeah. Um. But he he was the he was the godfather. He was the one um, who actually brought it into the modern day sort of, you know, I guess the the pro world now there you can look back and find texts on power endurance from you know the Vergoshansky side of things the old russian stuff so it's been around right right um but all i did was try to disprove it found out actually this is crazy this is working so much and even really well developed athletes <laughs> and what it is essentially power ability the definition of repeat power ability rather than power endurance repeat powerability is defined as the ability to repeatedly produce power at maximal or near maximal levels so it's not CrossFit. You're not grinding out 80% of something for, for 20 minutes. It's impossible to do that. You will decline rapidly. You need feedback. So it's gonna you're gonna have to see rep by rep feedback to keep yourself accountable. Um, and it's essentially about doing more reps and volume than you would normally do in a traditional power training session. So rather than doing three reps or four reps, you might actually push the boat out to 12 or 15 reps okay and you're going to get feedback every rep you might start with clusters so you might only do three at a time then have a a break and do another three to get it only small breaks and especially we normally implement that in a format called high volume power training hvpt and that's what we do initially where we put clusters and then we'll start taking away the clusters so they're continuous reps we'll also play with our rest between sets so our inter set rest Generally here, the concept here, you can go both ways where you have minimal rest between sets or you have actually full recovery, actually give three, four, five minutes recovery. Now, one of the reasons why is we want output to always be high. Yes. Now I can tell you, even after one minute, your output for the first two reps will still be maximal. It defies all logic to us, but I've got I've got so much data on this <laughs> with truly powerful athletes and beginner development athletes everyone can hit their power again in multiple sets early on. So what we're actually doing is we're training two systems. We're training the nervous system in terms of pure output maximally, plus we're forcing the cardiorespiratory system to try and maintain. So we are getting a huge metabolic hit as well. So we're getting lactate, blood lactate levels of up to 17 millimoles. hugely, oh. hugely tough work. Oh. Now, that's that. So the beauty in is is in it, in it is we get both. Now I've done trials where we've had one group doing traditional training, cardio and strength. Another group doing repeat power ability or high volume power training. Having a washout period, which is a super cool study design, right? Where everyone just goes back to normal training together, and then we switch the groups. So like the best sort of studies you can get to, yeah. And found changes in time, time to exhaustion on a treadmill, Wingate performance. Um, Peak power output on a counter movement jump. Peak power output with load because you're doing it with load. You're doing it anywhere from 30 to 70% load. My preference is to hit 30% loads when we're doing the work. And and funny enough, and this is this is the this is the kicker. Even isometric pool has gone up. It's wow. crazy after two wow. weeks of training. So what's happening is this stimulus is so big to the nervous system, um, and and the cardiorespiratory. It's such a high stimulus that you just get this response straight away. Um, One of the things we did find, we did this with England Netball, actually, leading up to the the Commonwealth Games in Calcutta. They performed better straight after it. And we're doing this almost a peaking strategy before they left. They performed well, better after their speed scores, everything was up. And then 10 days later, when they were in Calcutta, we tested them again and they'd gone up even more. So it was like there was still some fatigue in the system. So that's that's the balancing act on how you do this. You've got to understand that it's a huge stimulus. With a huge stimulus, unlike ISOs, <laughs> a huge stimulus has a negative, a negative or a, a necessary response, which will yes. be fatigue. So you just got to understand how much to apply, how often to apply the dose, so it doesn't become so novel again if you need it to, and when to apply it. Is it a pre-season strategy? Is it a peaking strategy? Is it an early season? Is it a late season? When and how do you do it? And once you've got all those pieces of the puzzle together, you can then implement them really effectively. So it's actually, it's actually um. Something I consult on quite regularly, Um, even Lawn Tennis Association, uh, not Lawn Tennis, sorry, the um, professional tennis players on the circuit going from country to country, they'll have a very short period of time where they're able to, you know, really concentrate their physical qualities. But I've got some now, LTA athletes, so British, British tennis players, who will go away and still do the bare minimum, if you want, the minimal effective dose of repeat power ability work, high volume power training work, and it's in clusters and it's nowhere near the same volumes. Um, just to maintain these physical qualities. So when they get back and have that period of time where they might have two or three weeks between tournament, boom, they hit it again and and really ramp it up in terms of reducing rest periods between um, clusters, reducing rest periods between sets. Um, Normally pretty stable on the load. We don't change the load too much. Like I said, I've gone up to 70%, but my preference now is 30%. And uh, to give you a real good snapshot for everyone, if we were going to say, and I hate doing this, but blanket approach, here you go, how you execute it 30% one RM, somewhere between 12 to 15 reps. Um, it can change and go up to 20 and go down as, as low as eight. We're looking at somewhere between one to three minutes rest between sets, no more than 48 to sort of 75 reps, really. Uh, 48 in total. So that would be like, say, four sets of 12 to yeah. get your 48 done, or four sets of, uh, or five sets of 15, I believe, if my math is correct, to get your 75 kind of done. <laughs> You can do an upper body lift, upper body lower body split too um and you wouldn't but you wouldn't do the same volume for each of them so if you were going to do 75 reps on lower body you'd reduce that probably to 50 and you do a 50 50 50 reps upper body 50 reps lower body um and you have less rest then because you you've almost had a little bit of rest so say you went from a squat jump loaded squat jump to a bench throw on a smith machine yeah um you have a moment rest between one to the other so you'd have about 30 seconds rest you'd get on the bench throw and then you probably have a minute rest and then get back on it because you've had your legs have had a had a rest period there anyway. So you can actually ha- actually get through those sessions a little bit quicker in and out. No session lasts for more than 20 minutes. And that's from in and out of the gym. And when we did these some of these repeat powerability, um, high volume power training uh, research protocols, that was literally all they did. They did nothing else. No strength yeah. work, no, no power work, no nothing, just that. So. I love it. There's a snapshot made of my whole
1: PhD now. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like probably five years of work, right? Something ridiculous <laughs> like that. Uh, okay. So I do have one follow-up there. How are you tracking yeah. outputs? Are you using a force plate? Is it VBT? Is it a jump mat? What are you doing
0: to track them? Both. Um, both uh, VBT, so some sort of encoder. Um, I've got a long-standing relationship with JimAware, So I use JimAware yeah. and force plates. So I use the Valve Force Dex. Um, So I use both. The force plates, um, I'm not using for immediate feedback. They're for my data to nerd out on later. But I'm <laughs> yeah. using Jim aware for the immediate feedback with, okay. with TV screens in front, so the athletes can tell they know what they're supposed to be hitting. Um, you know, there's a level. So it's funny with this, you're actually wanting fatigue, right? Right. So you're, but and that's what you're based on if you're if you're getting 25 to 30 percent fatigue, you've gone too far, right? You need to change something. If you're getting less than 10 percent fatigue, it's not enough. So you have got to change something. So you're looking for some sort of sweet spot around 15 to 20 percent fatigue and i can tell you with some sports i can't believe i'm mentioning rowing again rowers can just churn out and churn out and churn out they just keep producing at 90 percent the whole time so then you need to change stuff with them you need to put more load on reduce the rest times give them more reps there's multiple ways of manipulating it to get the desired fatigue so the idea is you want the fatigue and you want the output you want the output for the start of the next set and you want that fatigue and then you have to cut off eventually when the fatigue is too great. So when you're starting to reach 25 and 30 percent fatigue, it's way too much. There's no need to go that far. I got okay, So, so then you, you stop the session. OK,
1: cool. All right. One more thing I want to nerd out on for a minute and then we'll start to wrap up here. But. I know you're a big, flan, a big fan of the ExerFly and flywheel training. Uh, it's something I've started to get into and dabble with more myself. I've loved what I've seen from it. But where do you feel like flywheel training fits into a program?
0: Sure. Uh, often very early on for me in a, um, in a period, eccentrics and isometrics and traditional lifting all form part of my programs and plyometrics, clearly. It's not um, just isometrics. Sorry? No, no not, it's just not just isometrics. Believe it or not. Yeah, believe it or not. Do we have a glitch then? We had a glitch? No, not just isos. Um, so eccentrics, and they are a rock bed actually for isos, to be honest. When you think about it, if you're very strong eccentrically, then you can't, in a holding isometric, you're, you're pretty good in resisting an eccentric muscle action, right? Because you're so strong in that in the muscle action. So eccentric's actually a rock bed before we get into isos. It just needs to be done at the right times of the year. You know, running loads are high in an AFL um program you have to just be careful of eccentrics that's all and when they're when they're put into the program isometrics just mean that they can um they can occur all the time so eccentrics early on um for sure in a program eccentrics for sure for athletes that uh force um force uh or struggle with force generating capability or producing force effectively they have it more consistently in their program um Injured or, or or high risk athletes also have it somewhere in their program as well consistently. So they're they're the ways they're always always in there. When it comes to flywheels, flywheels have actually been uh, I've had a love hate relationship with them. Right, they've always been there in my programs, but they've always frustrated me in the fact that you know, and I see it. You even see it in research. They talk about eccentric overload with the flywheel. No, that's not that's not eccentric overload. That's just eccentric. That's right. all that is. It's not an overload, right? You're emphasizing eccentric um component because you can't just because the flywheel the nature of the f- cone and the cylinder and the flywheel means you can't just relax so you have to control right and that's that's why it's emphasized but it's not overloaded we know that we know that eccentric you know when you look at the research can eccentric strength can be anywhere from 110 percent to 150 percent of eccentric um uh, sorry of, of concentric nice. strength yep. we know that's not overloading because all you can put in you get out so you put in something concentrically, you get it back eccentrically, and that's always frustrated me. It's also frustrated me that you had to do funky things, like you maybe have to go up on two legs and help pull yourself up, and then go down on one leg to start getting overload. Yep. and that used to frustrate me. me. And I'm um, I i do not want to plug anyone, here and I get no benefit in plugging anyone. But the Exerfly um, motorized one now, that gives me a lot more energy and a lot more. Um, uh, I guess positiveness around the fact that now these flywheels you can use a motorized system to produce overload eccentrically true overload. I, yep. I can't remember whether it's 140, I think it might go up to 180% of yep. your concentric effort, which is crazy. So that gets really exciting now that we can use a, a versatile type t- uh, piece of equipment. Because otherwise you can do eccentrics, but you're on a leg press or you're on a you've got stoppers on your way. It's like they're all just clunky. You can't just get in and just go. They're just yes. difficult to do. But the the flywheel and the portability of the flywheel um, allows that. The frustration was this. That's why it just occurred early in the season. It's kind of like, here we go. Here's the eccentric, emphasized work, but not overload. And then we would go into overload work, which would be the annoying stuff, whether it be with weight releases or whether it be two up, one down, um, augmented eccentrics in some way. Um, but now, excitingly, we've got them in all the way. So that's one thing in terms of just pure load, eccentric load, to, to drive all these fantastic adaptations, which you only need to read um, the great reviews out there by Harden and um, and the like. Now, the other thing is the specificity of movement. And I'm always thinking that. I'm always thinking what's the adaptation I'm trying to drive yeah. um, diagnostically from a, from a physical quality, but also what is the movement? And, in fact, um, that's another uh, discussion in its own, but how you put a program together. I've got seven stages of things that go into a program. And at some stage, we're heavily considering the movement what are the movements this athlete's going to do? Yep. And when it comes to movement, okay, what is eccentric in a movement? If you're going to cut, change direction, that's an eccentric movement, right? Yep. That's pure eccentric. If you're running, we can argue the cows come home that it's pseudo-eccentric, pseudo isometric, pseudo eccentric, but not massively eccentric. Um, we can argue about multiple different different. Um, movements and say, whether well, they're purely eccentric or not. That is a purity centric movement. So whenever I'm doing change of direction type work or preparation for change of direction work, we're doing eccentric work. And the beauty of the flywheel is we can have angles coming off and we can do multiple sort of um, uh, different movements off the back of these, uh, these flywheel devices.
1: I love it. I love it. All right, man. I'm I know it is not late there, but it's getting late here. So I'm going to start to wrap this up because, man, I, this has been so amazing. And I want to ask you a couple more questions before we finish up. So number one, I'm going to ask the big question. And you, it sounds like you maybe listened to a show or two. But I got to ask you, if you could alter the space-time continuum and give young Alex Natera one piece of advice, what would it be?
0: Do you know what? I'll be honest with this one. I um, I definitely stalked you when Manu was coming on this and I looked at I looked at the commonalities of some of the questions. I know this one always comes out, yeah. And it's a super cool question. It's a super cool question, and um, i I'm puzzled. And I thought, you know, do I try and get you know an epiphany moment here? Do I <laughs> want to go? I should go see my therapist and work out something really cool to say, you know, whatever. But, <laughs> but no, genuinely, genuinely, I'm a I'm a God fearing man, and um, I'm very deep in in that regard. And I everything in my life has happened for a reason. So whenever I start thinking about, I wish I could change this, it actually doesn't fit comfortably with me because I know I just wouldn't be who I am today. Yes. But that I'm not sitting on the fence and I'm copping out of this. So I'm going to have a crack, right? Okay. And to be honest, uh, to be honest, uh, I reckon if I could tell my young self, maybe not like less personally, but let's say technically as an SNC physical performance coach, I would tell myself that it's going to be all right eventually. You're going to make it. You're going to be. You're going to be up there, and you're going to be very proud of your career and what you've gone and achieved. So get some friggin' sleep. <laughs> like go to sleep. Yeah. It's okay. You don't have to be spinning around in your mind. You don't have to I was para- mate for years and years I was an insomniac and now I'm not. But I was an insomniac and I, I was thinking about all sorts of things but mostly it was what was my session tomorrow. How am I gonna? How am I gonna front up? I've always been very big on energy. Um, that's uh, that's a standard always up there, high energy. But am I gonna execute perfectly? Uh, is it gonna be the best session? Are the boys gonna love it? Are the girls gonna be? You know, am I gonna be able to be that person to you know put my arm around them, but also drive them today? Am I gonna be? Am I gonna be everything I want to be? Because I want to be there now. I don't want to gradually build and get there. I want to be there now. And I just lost so much sleep, and I'm sure it's had an impact on multiple things in my life because of that. But if I could say, Alex, just go to bed, mate, sleep, because i tell you what, you're going to get there. It's all going to be okay. Yep. I reckon that's my uh,
1: that's my, my biggest thing I'd tell myself. I love it, man. I love it. All right, so last but not least, we've got our lightning round. So four fairly short questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. Number one, pretty easy, hopefully. Uh, you've worked with tons of sports over the years. I mean, I don't even know how many you listed up top. But I'd love to know what's your favorite sport
0: to watch and why. Oh, it's like who's my favorite son? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I've got um, no, I've got one, mate, and it's um, it's crazy, right? And uh, AFL AFL football, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Australian Football League is a manic game manic game requiring everything you can think of i mean super super endurance but also strength and power agility speed and the game itself you got to watch it it does not stop yeah the the whole whole thing about the game is they get frustrated if the ball's gone off the ground you get penalized for for getting the ball off the ground like that's (laughs) that's how much the ball needs to be in play and if there's a melee and the balls the, the umpire will sprint in Get the ball and just chuck it up in the air so it goes again. Like there's a time, <laughs> take a shot at the goal, like it's crazy. And so, and I used to, I used to watch it. So I didn't know AFL until I came over. And I worked with a team called the GWS Giants in Sydney here. And um, when I came over, knew nothing about the sport. I was very lucky that someone um was was confident in giving me a shot to, to, to work in the sport because it's very, very secular. Like you have to be in it to get in it, right? Probably yeah. like NFL, I guess. And so I was in and, and, and was doing my do and I was watching because like we all are, we deeply vested in our teams and our boys, our athletes playing. I'd be so nervous and my adrenaline wouldn't stop and I'd struggle in this game. The fault of the game is it's too long. It goes, to, well, I'm saying that NFL exactly the same. So maybe it's not too long. Maybe it's just the same, right? But um, in terms of rugby, it can be over and done within a couple of hours and you're done and your day's on. But this was like a whole day there at the club as a nightmare. But this game, I was always nervous. Adrenaline was up watching the boys play. But now I've left that sport and it's still there. It's because the ball doesn't stop and there's collisions coming from everywhere. You're up in the air. that You're getting hit in the back, hit in the side. Like these Warriors are crazy. So that is probably now, if it was shorter, I'd watch it more often. I don't watch yeah. it very often, um, but it's, it's a pretty full-on sport. It's pretty now, impressive. correct me
1: if I'm wrong, because I feel like I actually watched it growing up we had we lived in the country we had this super remote uh like it wasn't even direct tv at the time but we had like satellite tv so i would watch this and i was like i have no idea what's going on in this game but these guys are just running incessantly so correct me if i'm wrong do they it's like the highest running like distance covered the highest distance covered almost of any team sport am i correct like even higher than soccer and all those other sports
0: yeah, our guy, our biggest guy, guy, named Tom Scully, ran 18 kilometers one game. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, man, it's ridiculous. Lot,
0: yeah, 18 kilometers and a lot, like a lot of high speed and very high speed meters, too, like crazy. Yeah. And they're getting belted as well. So it's not like <laughs> soccer and the fact that this is a true contact sport. So they're getting belted from all angles and all positions. <laughs> um, it's brutal. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Man. So I have a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of admiration for what they put their bodies into, and then trying to be an SNC coach off the back of what we call a car crash, is phenomenal, mate. It really is, and that's why they're the most brutal pre seasons I've ever been a part of. Brutal pre seasons, um, and it prepares them for that. <laughs> I can I can only imagine. Okay, number two, you are a
1: incredibly prolific content creator between social media courses, all that, and I respect you so much for that. So my question is. What motivates you to keep creating content?
0: <laughs> oh, thanks, Mike. I don't think I'm prolific, actually. I think I could do a lot more. I need to be better. I need to be more regular. Um, so i get, yeah, i get, I get in trouble for that. I just, one day I'll have the time and I will definitely do more of it. I've just got too many plates yes. spinning at the moment. But look, I've been asked a few times by... <clears throat> these marketing people who want to come on and I'm sure you get it all the time. They want to help you with your business and they think you can, they can give you a billion (laughs) followers, or whatever. And most of the time I say to them, well, what do you think my brand is? They ask me what my brand is. I what do you think my brand is? And they come up with some absolute waffle and then tell me how mass market appeal, I should do this. And these aren't just the internet people, right? These are people you know, unfortunately, people you work with sometimes and they're telling you that. And I'm like, well, I'm either not doing a good job of my brand or you just have no idea. I just want to educate that's all i want to do i want to help and i right. want to share that's the primary objective and what frustrates me nowadays and there's probably another podcast to talk about problems in the industry there's not enough inquisitiveness in the industry anymore and it it's it's a nature of mine to be very inquisitive so if i don't have the answers or even if they do even if the research says it or someone's book says that i'll still go and test it myself and then i'll tweak it and i'll try a different thing and i'll work it out and i'll collect the data and, I'll, and then i'll go well hold on why is it just sitting with me I should go share it, share it to everyone, then everyone can grow from it. And I try and promote with my staff too, what are you doing differently? Where are you innovating? Why are you just taking that person's word for it? Why? Because Alex says ISOs are great. Why are you going doing ISOs now? And that's what's happening too. I'm like, why? Well, what's your rationale? Why, why? Have you tested it? What are you doing? What are you doing to look at it? What else can you do differently? What else don't you know? What are you doing where you go, oh, because. Now, why are you doing that? Oh, because. That's what they say to do. <laughs> But, yep. yeah, test it. Why do eight? Why not do 10? Why not do four? Why do eight sets? Why not do whatever, you know, yeah, just absolutely. do go out and be more inquisitive. So mate, that's my motivation. My motivation is to share and to help. And, and I don't know whether it will change. Like as in, will I do more for the general pop or will I do, I don't know, um, more, more, um, I don't know, more mentoring or more, I don't know, more consultative stuff might it change a little bit. I do all of that anyway, but I, I don't sort of share it so much. Um, developing people's massive for me i don't use any median whatsoever to, to show my philosophies on how to develop people um but yeah that's where i'm at at the moment mate and i appreciate that you think it's prolific i need yeah. to be better but thank you i appreciate it
1: well okay not just prolific but it's very high quality right there's a lot of people that i think we could both agree are probably very prolific in the sense that they put a lot of stuff out there but the quality level of it is suspect i feel like everything you put out is high quality so i've I just respect that. It's impressive.
0: I uh, appreciate that, Mike. Now I feel like i got a little pressure on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, hey, it'll go
1: seamlessly into question number three here because we've joked around about okay. isometrics, right? And we've talked about you're the ISO guy. But I am legitimately, I'm going to take this ISO course when it launches here very shortly. Tell us a little bit about that
0: um yeah great concept um i think if we if we go back originally um a podcast uh i'll say i'm sure you and rob pacey are familiar with each other and good mm-hmm. friends or no doubt in some way your podcast relationships somehow he teased it out of me in a podcast i did for him down i don't know maybe it was 2014. he just started talking about training sprinters and he asked me how i train sprinters in this podcast and i mentioned isometrics and specific isometrics for running and that was it and and then Guys like Joel Smith and whatever just jumped on it, right? And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just say that and not <laughs> give us any more info. So then it just started this world. And stuff I'd been doing for years and years, but I just wasn't savvy with, you know, I guess, social media and sharing. And that's why I'm doing it now, right? These people have brought this out in me to be able to help and share. Um, and so it then, yeah, I guess then it became more of a, I dare say, I don't want to call it a method or a system, but it is. It's a it's a system of training for or run specificity essentially and so this you know it's got on different forms of sharing on podcasts to doing webinars to do whatever and then eventually people started saying hey you write a book and i said there's no chance I'm writing a book i'm sorry like <laughs> uh, i've got a phd i've got a consultancy business i've got my main job which is massive and i've got there's way too much going on i'm not writing a book um, if i'm writing i'm doing my my articles for my phd um, and then a few other iterations came by and then it was courses. Could you do a course for us? And I won't name companies and it just didn't sit comfortably with me. Mike, it was, it was a lot of IP, a lot of information. And I was like, this needs to go in the right format. I need to do a course somewhere to share. I'm consulting different companies and franchises, but I need a format to share this on, but it just has to be the right place and the right person. And then finally, Rob, Rob Pacey got in touch with me with, through his sportsmith company and said, Hey, would you like to do it? And I, t- I was honest with Rob, I said, Rob, I've had lots of offers, I'm not too keen, I'm, I'm worried, um, I want to do this in the right way. And then I thought long and hard and I'm like, do you know what, what's more important to me is the people I do it with. Um, and, you know, Rob's got a great reputation, sportsmen have got a great reputation, good people, good honest guys, you know, call BS when they see BS, um, try and deviate away from people who are just not very nice people, right, in the industry. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm happy to be associated with that. And then... We, we went together on building a course. And so um, the course kind of stems from a lot of what I do from a workshop perspective and, and how I run some of my consultancy if I'm in with a team. But then it just goes deeper and deeper and expands more. And we've managed to get a lot of other experts from the likes of, you know, Keith Barr to, um, to, uh, to Paul Comfort and, and the like. And then we've got this... The coolest part of the course i reckon for me anyway is the case studies we've got so we've got practitioners from all around the world who do isos and that was a simple hey i'm doing a course guys anyone do isos at the moment to good effect get in touch with me now they got in touch with me and i was like whoa i'm like rob get in touch with them see what we can come up with and they're like no nah, it's magic it's this it's that it's all this stuff which is great and then there's others who just say, no, it's just a part of my program uh, which is great and they're all on there they're all on there just talking about how they implement it so you get a whole rundown of what my method is you get a brief history or a lengthy history of what it is and the different methods there are out there. You know how to use them, how to implement them. Um, our second edition coming out now, um, which all the people in the first edition get a, a lifetime access to. So every iteration we make, you get the access to. Um, there's a lot more coaching. I put a lot more programs together. Um, we go from LTAD implementation. We go through rehabilitation from, you name it, from my I'll give it a case study on Achilles tendon rupture and using it in a concept I call Run Before You Run. Um, using these isometric strategies before you run and then you, you fly, right? It's yeah. I've got a great case study there i highlight. We go up to the knee, we go up to the hamstring, you know, hip area, we go up to the shoulders, we do all the LTA um, and all the, like I said, all the LTA, all the performance, talk about how to put it into a, um, you know, a, a a one competition sort of, calendar look at putting it into multiple years look at putting it into um week-to-week training formats whether it's a four-day turnaround an eight-day turnaround and so on so yeah we, we cover quite a lot and um and then get into the science as well it's 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 good fun i love it man i love it like i said i'm definitely
1: gonna check it out can't wait to check it out last but not least number four what's next for alex Natera, man so much going on so many plates you got spinning what's what's left to do man
0: Oh, heaps to do, heaps to do. Um, But um, yeah, look, I think the the biggest thing is just uh, finishing my my PhD. I'm sure if my supervisor listening, they're going to be very happy with that. So within within this year, I'll do a few more publications, at least one by the end of this year, a couple more next year, and hopefully have the PhD wrapped up by mid next year. Um, Got a couple tours coming, none to the US, but a tour through Europe coming next year, which is going to be great. Uh, We're going to do heaps of workshops. Um, We're going to go and see... Lots of professional clubs. Um, gosh, we're going. We've got bookings in Spain, Germany, Austria, all over the place. That that'll be lots of good fun, and we'll advertise that properly soon, and see who else wants in. Um, and then, yeah, and then really, mate, I, I should mention in case my employers are, are listening. You know, there's a there's a, a big run into 2032 Olympic Games, and lots of changing, and with that comes, you know, big government funding and some exciting things. So hopefully. You know, we once were, I feel, the leaders in 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 SNC and performance sport in Australia. Lots of teams and countries have caught up and overtaken us. Um, but I feel like we've got this 10-year run in now where we're going we're gonna to lead the world again, hopefully. So uh, should it should be an exciting era. <laughs> I love it, man. Well,
1: Alex, uh, you've been so gracious with your time. This has gone probably twice as long as a lot of my shows. And for good reason. I had so many questions and I appreciate your time. Uh, all the great contributions you're making to our industry. Where can my listeners find out more about you?
0: I think best is Instagram, Alex.natera, uh Twitter as well as Slowly Building. I can't keep yes. two on at the same time, but that's <laughs> Alex underscore Natera. Um I'll always I'll always get back to questions. They'll, they'll um might be a bit slow sometimes, but I'll always get back to them. Um, if it's just a point, um someone offloading something probably won't hear back from me. I don't really engage in too many arguments on on, yes. on those on those formats. But if it's a genuine question, for sure, I'll be getting back to you. I love it. Well, Alex, again,
1: thank you so much for your time, man. It was really great getting you on.
0: Awesome, Mike. It's been a pleasure, mate. Have
1: a good evening. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Alex Natera. Really hope you enjoyed it. Man, this guy is just a wealth of knowledge. And as you can tell, it ran a little bit longer than some of my previous episodes. That's only because it was so freaking good. Like, yeah, there were a few times I wanted to ask follow-up questions, but he's so thorough, so detailed in his responses. I just absolutely loved this episode. And I can tell you, you know, there's a lot of times where I listen to a show, and I think that's great, and I take a couple notes. This is going to be one that I go back to time and again. So I hope you enjoyed it on the first listen. But if you're smart, I think you're going to go back two or three times. Get your notebook out. Take a lot of notes because Alex touches on so many great points and so many great topics. And I think it's an episode that you can learn from in the months and years to come. Now, as I mentioned, 350 episodes in, 2 million-some downloads. I really need your help because I've got big plans for the podcast going forward. I've got just a murderer's row of people that I want to get on. I've got new sponsors that are coming on board and look, I just still love doing this as you can tell, I mean I took Alex's interview we started at nine o'clock at night didn't finish till 10:30 because I want to bring world-class people on the show and I want to help people like you get better. So if you enjoy, the show. If you enjoy these episodes, do one of two things for me. Either, number one, if you're not already subscribed yourself, do that right now. Wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now and hit the subscribe button. If you are already subscribed, I appreciate it. Go one step further and share this episode with somebody that you think will benefit from it. Like I said, this is probably a top five episode of all time for me. Out of 350 shows, Alex just blew me away time and again with his answers and with his thoughtfulness. So if you enjoyed this show as much as I did, share it with a friend, put it on social media, tag me, especially at Rob Train Systems. I'll repost it so we can get people like Alex at the forefront of our industry. Okay, so my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.